Chapter Three of Brewing by A. Cheston Chapman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Three, Mashing. In a few words, the object of this most important operation may be said to be the conversion by diastase of the starch of the malt or other grain, when this is used, partly into fermentable sugar and partly into other substances which are either unfermentable or which only undergo fermentation with considerable difficulty. Simple as this statement may appear to be, the chemical changes involved in the process are exceedingly complex, and notwithstanding the immense amount of labor which has been for many years devoted to their study, it cannot be said that they are even now fully understood. Sufficient has, however, been learned in regard to the chemistry of the transformation of starch at the instant of diastase to furnish us with a tolerably clear insight into the nature of the changes occurring during the mashing process, and to serve as a reliable guide to the brewer in the control of his operations. Before dealing with this part of the subject, it may be well to refer to the important bearing which the nature of the water used has on the quality of the resulting beer. At an early date, the town of Burton-on-Trent became celebrated for its pale ales, whilst Dublin and London became almost equally renowned for the excellence of their stouts and porters. Whilst this was to some extent due to differences in the methods of brewing adopted, it was soon recognized that it was chiefly owing to the different character of the water supplies of the respective districts, for even when the same materials and the same methods of brewing were employed, it was found, for example, to be impossible with the London water to brew pale ales, having the same character and general excellence as those brewed in Burton, and on the other hand, Burton stouts and porters could not compete with those of London and Dublin. Now the water from the Burton wells is found to contain large quantities of calcium sulphate, about 80 grains per gallon, with smaller proportions of magnesium sulphate, and it is to the presence of these salts, particularly the former, in such comparatively large quantities that the special suitability of the Burton water for the production of pale ales is due. On the other hand, the Dublin water contains little else than the carbonates of calcium and magnesium, and after boiling is consequently very soft, whilst the water from the deep wells in and around London contains sulphates, carbonates, and chlorides of sodium, and is free from the earthy sulphates above referred to. Putting the matter very briefly, it may be said that hard waters containing much calcium sulphate, such as those of Burton, are specially suited for the brewing of pale ales and the better class of bitter beers, whilst soft waters are best for the production of stout and porter. Mild ales and certain other classes of beer require for their production water intermediate in respect of hardness between the two above-mentioned classes. Since the composition of the water necessary for the production in their highest excellency of the various classes of beer is well known, it will be clear that much may be done to convert an unsuitable water into a suitable one by artificial treatment, that is to say, by the addition of those mineral ingredients in which it is naturally deficient, or by the decomposition of those ingredients which are undesirable. Whilst the desired result cannot always be brought about by artificial treatment, it is possible, in the great majority of cases, to render certain water supplies much more suitable than they would otherwise have been by the addition of the necessary materials such as calcium sulphate, gypsum, magnesium sulphate, calcium chloride, etc. Thanks to this knowledge, it is now possible to brew pale ales of good quality in many towns other than Burton, and to use natural supplies which would otherwise be unsuitable for the production of certain classes of beer now largely in demand. 
it should be said that all water intended for brewing purposes whether hard or soft must be of a high degree of organic purity the first actual process within the brewery is the grinding of the malt this is effected by passing the malt through revolving steel rolls two pairs being often used side by side with the rolls set at different distances the small corns being passed through the one pair and the larger corns through the other in this way something approaching to uniformity of grinding is obtained the object of the brewer is not to grind as finely as possible but to crush each corn thoroughly so as to permit of the ready attack of the starch by the diastes when water is added and yet to bring about as little disintegration as possible of the husk of the grain which is needed to assist filtration in the mash tun in certain modern processes of grinding the mealy portion of the grain is separated after crushing by various mechanical devices from the husk and the former is then more finely ground with the object of increasing the amount of extractive matter to be obtained from it but it is not within the scope of this book to deal with working details and in any case the great majority of brewers still adopt the simpler though less perfect form of grinding machinery above referred to the malt having been ground or crushed the brewer is ready to commence the process of mashing in this process the crushed malt has to be mixed with the requisite amount of water under such conditions of temperature that the action of the diastase on the starch can be kept within certain necessary limits the vessel in which this action takes place is known as the mash tun as will be seen by reference to the following diagrammatic drawing figure one it consists essentially of a covered cylindrical vessel constructed usually of wood or iron fitted with a perforated false bottom a revolving rakes or stirring machinery b a sparging or washing appliance c and a number of pipes for drawing off the resulting clear wort d in some cases the admixture of crushed malt grist and water is made directly in the mash tun itself but more frequently a mechanical appliance known as an external masher e is used by means of which a more perfect admixture of the malt and the water can be made which enables the brewer to maintain a more exact control over the temperature of the mixture which as we shall shortly see is a matter of the highest importance it will be remembered that during the process of malting the whole internal structure of the barley corn is altered in such a way that the starch granules with which the endosperm is packed are rendered more easily amenable to the action of the enzyme diastase when the crushed malt is mixed with water at suitable temperatures it is generally held that this is due to the disintegration by enzymatic activity of the walls of the vegetable cells in which those granules are formed and contained and the process is technically referred to as modification ungerminated barley contains a form of diastase the natural function of which appears to be the transference of starch from one part of the growing organism to another this was termed by brown and morris translocation diastase in contradistinction to the diastase of secretion which is formed during the germination period the precise chemical limitations and functions of these two forms of diastase are still uncertain but it may be said that it is the diastase of secretion which will be subsequently referred to simply as diastase formed during the malting process which is responsible for the conversion of the starch during mashing and that this diastase is only capable of acting under the ordinary conditions of grinding and temperature on such of the starch as is contained in cells which have undergone the above-mentioned process of modification from this it follows that if any portion of the barley corn has escaped that change that is to say is hard and vitreous like barley instead of being soft and friable like malt 
it will in most cases escape conversion in the mash tun and will so be lost to the brewer it is usually stated as a general proposition that gelatinization of starch by heat must precede its conversion into soluble products by diestes and whilst this is true of potato starch it does not appear to be the case with the starch of barley and certain other cereals at any rate in a well-made barley malt we have all the potentialities of the change which it is the object of the brewer to bring about there is starch in a condition to be readily acted on by diastase and there is more than sufficient diastase to convert that starch into soluble and partly fermentable substances it will now be necessary to consider briefly the nature of that very important change it may be said at once that the chemical reactions involved in the diastic transformation of starch are of a highly complex character and are still the subject of investigation it would obviously serve no useful purpose even if it were possible within the limits assigned to this manual to attempt to deal with the various views which have been held by the many chemists who have devoted themselves to this subject and i therefore propose to state in the simplest language possible the view which is most widely held at the present time and which certainly offers the most satisfactory explanation of the observed facts in regard to the composition of granular starch that is starch as it exists in various plants we know nothing save that its empirical or simplest formula is c six h ten o five by submitting this to the action of cold dilute mineral acid or in other ways it may be converted into a simpler product which gives many of the ordinary reactions of granular starch from which however it differs in being soluble in hot water and in not forming a paste or jelly when its hot aqueous solutions are cooled down this substance is known as soluble starch and is the starting point of the change which we are considering it has the same empirical formula as ordinary granular starch and there is some ground for assigning it to the molecular formula paren c twelve h twenty o ten close paren one hundred when soluble starch is acted on for a long time by diastes at low temperatures it is entirely converted into maltose water entering into the reaction according to the following equation c twelve h twenty o ten plus h two o equals c twelve h twenty two o eleven when however the action takes place at higher temperatures such as those adopted in the mash tun the starch molecule breaks down in such a manner as to yield maltose dextrin and certain intermediate bodies known as maltodextrins or amyloids the soluble starch molecule may be represented as being composed of five units of repeating amylin segments of carbon twelve hydrogen twenty oxygen ten paren c twelve h twenty o ten close paren twenty at the moment of the attack by diastis this molecule breaks down into its five component groups one of which differs from the remaining four in its resistance to the further action of the diastes and constitutes the substance referred to in the literature of starch conversion as stable dextrin the remaining four complexes each having the formula paren c twelve h twenty o ten close paren twenty then undergo progressive hydrolysis each c twelve h twenty o ten or amylin group becoming converted by the assumption of water into a c twelve h twenty two o eleven or maltose group footnote by hydrolysis is meant the conversion of one substance into one or more other substances of similar molecular formula usually at the instance of dilute acids or enzymes 
such conversion being preceded by the assumption of one or more molecules of water. End footnote. As each amylin group takes up the elements of water, the resulting maltose group remains a constituent of the complex unit until the last has been hydrolyzed, when free maltose results. Thus, the change in the case of each of the four complexes might be illustrated by the following scheme. Parenthesis C12H20O10 close parenthesis 20 is hydrolyzed into a maltodextrin composed of two subunits, one of 19 repeating amylin C12H20O10 segments, and the second of maltose C12H22O11. This in turn is hydrolyzed into a maltodextrin composed of two subunits, one of 18 repeating amylin segments, and the other of two repeating maltose segments. The process continues another 18 times until all the amylin segments are hydrolyzed, and 20 molecules of free maltose C12H22O11 result. From this it follows that if the diastes were allowed to act at favorable temperatures for a sufficiently long time, the final products of the reaction would be maltose and the stable dextrin, which is only acted upon with extreme difficulty. If, however, the temperature and time conditions are so arranged as to restrict the action, and this is the case in the brewer's mash tun, then, in addition to free maltose and the stable dextrin, a certain proportion of the intermediate products of the reaction, the maltodextrins, will occur. It now remains to consider the parts which these various substances play in the production of beer. Beer differs from many alcoholic beverages, in that its flavor and character are quite as much, if not more, dependent on the nature of the unfermented extractive matters than on the presence of alcohol and other volatile products of fermentation. In addition to this, it is essential that it should be capable of undergoing a certain amount of fermentation while in the cask, and often in the bottle, awaiting consumption. The cask fermentation keeps the beer charged with carbon dioxide gas, and without it the liquid would speedily become flat and undrinkable. It is clear from these considerations that the extractive matters derived from the malt or other materials must not be completely fermentable, for if that were the case, the resulting liquid would be little more than a dilute solution of alcohol, and would not possess any of the characteristics of beer. It may be mentioned in passing that this is the aim of the distiller, who desires only to produce alcohol, and whose methods are in consequence directed chiefly to that end. It will be remembered that the brewer makes use of malt which has been heated on the kiln to such a temperature as to bring about the destruction of much of the diastes formed during the germination of the grain, and in the mash tun he again employs temperatures sufficiently high to restrict the activity of that which remains. In this way he ensures that the wort, that is, the clear saccharine liquid containing the products of the conversion of the starch, shall contain one maltose two maltodextrins, and three stabledextrin. Now these substances together fulfill the conditions necessary for the production of beer, the maltose being readily fermentable and therefore yielding alcohol and carbon dioxide gas, the maltodextrins being less readily fermentable and the stabledextrin practically unfermentable. The readiness with which the maltodextrins are capable of undergoing fermentation depends to a great extent on their composition. Those which contain the largest number of the maltose groups in the complex molecule being hydrolyzed to free maltose and fermented much more easily than those containing a larger proportion of the amylin groups. All, however, are capable of being converted into maltose by diastes. The brewer's wort in the fermenting tun does not, however, contain any active diastes, 
and for the present it will suffice to say that the great bulk of the maltodextrins present in the wort are not fermented during the main fermentation by the ordinary yeast since maltose is completely fermentable and the stable dextrin for all practical purposes unfermentable it follows that the quantity and nature of the unfermented but fermentable matter remaining in the beer at the end of the fermentation will depend almost entirely on the proportion of maltodextrins in the wort as it leaves the mash tun and on their character this in turn is dependent on the nature of the malt employed and on the conditions to which it is subjected in the mash tun broadly it may be said that the malt kilned at a high temperature and mashed at a comparatively low one will yield warts containing relatively high proportions of free maltose and of low type maltodextrins whilst malt kilned at lower temperatures and mashed at rather higher ones will give warts containing less maltose and a larger proportion of high type maltodextrins the maltodextrins although behaving in some respects as actual compounds of maltose and dextrin groups yet manifest many of their properties of mixtures this is true of their flavor that of the high type compounds approximating that of dextrin itself whilst the low type maltodextrins more nearly resemble maltose in their degree of fermentability the same is true for the low type compounds are obviously more easily converted into maltose and therefore more readily fermented than those of higher type in practice this is of considerable importance particularly in connection with the brewing of beers of various classes if we take a stock pale ale as representing the one extreme and a mild ale intended for rapid consumption as representing the other we shall see that the requirements are very different indeed the former beer must be of delicate palate free from excessive sweetness and must contain a sufficient amount of residual carbohydrate matter to provide for a regular and constant supply of carbon dioxide gas cask fermentation or conditioning over a considerable period of time the mild ale on the other hand must be sweet rather than dry and must be in a condition for drinking within often a few days of its manufacture for the brewing of the pale ale, then, we require a wort containing a relatively large proportion of maltodextrins of high type, since these are devoid of sweetness, and owing to the slowness with which, under ordinary storage conditions, they are converted into fermentable maltose, they supply the long-maintained and persistent cask fermentation, which is a necessary feature of these beers. For the brewing of the mild ale, on the other hand, the wort must be rich in free maltose and in maltodextrins of low type such wort will be readily fermentable and the beer at racking will contain carbohydrate matters sweet to the palate and capable of undergoing the quick cask conditioning which is essential in the case of beer intended to be consumed within a few days of racking in practice it is found that these two sets of conditions are obtained by employing on the one hand a pale malt i e a malt kilned at comparatively low temperatures and adopting somewhat high mashing temperatures and on the other hand by using a higher dried malt and mashing it at lower temperatures it must not be thought that the range of mashing temperatures within which the brewer has to work is a wide one so powerfully is the diastase affected by slight variations of temperature within the limits of practical working that two or three degrees are often sufficient to affect to a marked extent the palate fullness rate of conditioning and other properties of the resulting beer when working on the infusion system of mashing as adopted in this country and accepting a few little used processes it may be taken that 145 degrees fahrenheit and 155 degrees fahrenheit represent the two extremes the lower temperatures being employed in the brewing of mild ales 
and the higher for the pale ales, stock bitters, and similar beers. It will be seen, then, that the great importance of the mashing process lies in the fact that it is in the mash tun that the character of the resulting beer is largely determined, the brewer so arranging his conditions in relation to the malt as to produce the type of wort and consequently the class of beer he desires. Various methods have been devised for arriving at a knowledge of the amount of active diastes existing in malt, or rather for assigning to malt's numbers, expressing in terms of an arbitrarily chosen scale their relative diastasic activities. Whilst these methods do not bear any simple relation to the conditions of brewery practice, the results they yield are often of the greatest value as showing whether any given sample of malt has been kilned in such a manner, that is to say whether its diastes has been suitably restricted, as to render it well adapted for the brewing of the particular class of beer for which it is to be used. The changes which have been described above and which occur when malt is mashed apply equally to any raw or unmalted grain which may be mixed in the mash tun with the malt. As has already been pointed out, the latter contains more diastes than is necessary for the conversion of its own starch, and so a proportion of starch derived from some other source may be used if desired, the conversion taking place as in the case of the barley malt starch itself. When, as is usually the case, some form of prepared grain, such as flaked or gelatinized maize or rice, is used, all that is necessary is to mix the grain uniformly with the malt in the mash tun itself, and proceed exactly as if an all-malt mash were being made. In the manufacture of these flaked materials, the grain is first submitted to a cleaning process, and is then broken up by machinery into small pieces, in which form it is known as grits. In the case of maize, this is preceded by the removal of the germ, which contains the greater part of the oil, this being objectionable from the brewing point of view. The grits are then subjected to the action of steam, whereby they are thoroughly softened, after which they are converted into flakes by being passed between hot rollers and finely dried. The main result of this steaming process is to break up the cell structures of the grain and to gelatinize the starch, and so render it amenable to the action of diastes at the comparatively low temperatures of the mash tun. Occasionally, however, grain which has not been subjected to this cooking process is employed, as, for example, maize grits, broken rice, oatmeal, in oatmeal stout, and rarely barley. In that case the starch is not in a condition to be acted on by diastes under the ordinary mashing conditions, and it becomes necessary to submit the raw grain in question to independent treatment in a separate vessel known as a converter. In this vessel the grain, mixed with a small proportion of pale or active malt, is slowly heated with water to about 180 degrees Fahrenheit by means of steam, and is kept at that temperature for a little while, after which it is raised nearly to boiling. The object of mixing a small proportion of pale malt with the grain is in order that the liquefying diastes of the malt may convert the ordinary starch into the soluble form and so prevent the grain mixture from becoming unduly viscous when cooled down to the temperature at which it has to be run into the mash tun. The starch is now in a condition to undergo sacrification by the malt diastes and the thin gruel is consequently run into the mash tun with the malt grist and mashed in the ordinary manner. In this country the system of mashing known as the infusion system is almost universally adopted, but on the continent of Europe and in America a process of decoction is very largely employed. In the infusion system the ground malt with other prepared grain, if such is used, is merely mixed with the requisite quantity of water at the most suitable temperature and the action is allowed to proceed until conversion is complete and until wort of the required composition has been obtained, 
after which the wort is run off and the residual grains are sparged the temperature rarely if ever rising above 165 degrees fahrenheit in the decoction method the malt is usually mixed with the water at a lower temperature than is customary in infusion mashing and the temperature of the mash is raised by successive stages nearly to boiling in some cases this is done by transferring a portion of the mash to a copper and after heating it to boiling returning it to the mash tun whilst in others a proportion of the clear wort is run off so as to preserve a sufficient amount of active diastes after which the contents of the mash tun are raised to a high temperature by means of steam and when cooled sufficiently the active wort is run in and the mashing allowed to proceed it will be seen that an important difference between these two systems lies in the fact that in the decoction method the mash is raised nearly to the boiling point of water and so any imperfectly modified grain is gelatinized and rendered amenable to the sacrifying action of the diastes it follows that with ordinary malts which no matter how carefully made are apt to contain a little unmodified grain the decoction system yields higher extracts that is to say gives a rather greater proportion of soluble matter than the infusion it is however very generally held that decoction mashing is not so well suited to the production of english beers as the method ordinarily followed and in this there is some truth the mashing having been completed the bright wort is run off from the insoluble portion of the grain into the copper where it is boiled with hops as the strong wort runs off hot water is sparged on the residual grains so as to extract as completely as possible the whole of the soluble matter and this too runs into the copper the brewer knowing the proportions of extractive matters yielded by the malts and other materials he is using is easily able to calculate the total quantity of water necessary to produce the required volume of wort at the requisite density the density of the wort as will be seen later determines the strength of the beer to be brewed and as taken in the fermentation tun prior to fermentation constitutes what is known as the original gravity of the resulting beer the sparging process to which reference has been made consists essentially in washing out of the grains the soluble matters which have been formed during mashing care has to be exercised not to employ water at too high a temperature since small quantities of unconverted starch left in the grains would be gelatinized and brought into solution and as the small amount of diastes remaining might easily be rendered inactive such starch would pass into the wort and might cause some difficulty in connection with the brightness of the beer as a rule sparging commences at a temperature of about one hundred and seventy degrees fahrenheit which is somewhat in excess of the average mash temperature required since some heat will have been lost during the period of standing and this has to be made up at the end of sparging the temperature of the residual grains or goods to use the term usually employed will be about 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and the density of the last runnings, if the operations have been properly conducted, will not exceed 1,002 degrees or 1,003 degrees. In the case of strong beers, however, when less sparging water has been used, this final gravity may be somewhat exceeded. The spent grains left in the mash tun when sparging is finished contain a little starch, the amount depending on the thoroughness with which the malt has undergone modification during the malting process and on the success with which the mashing operations have been carried out they also contain the insoluble proteins of the malt a little oil from the malt and a good deal of digestible fiber they have consequently a moderately high cattle feeding value and are readily purchased for that purpose by farmers and others sometimes they are bought in their wet condition with about seventy five per cent of water but more often they are first dried 
since in this condition they will keep good indefinitely, the wet grains rapidly becoming sour and unpleasant, particularly in the summer. The following may be taken as representing the average composition of dried spent grains as obtained in the ordinary infusion system of mashing. Starch, 4.15. Digestible fiber and gum, 36.0. Fat and oil, 6.5. Albuminoids, proteins, 18.4. Ash, 4.12. Moisture, 8.96. Crude fiber, 21.87. Total, 100%. Such a product has a combined feeding and manurial value represented by about 102 units, compare say with 104 for an average sample of wheat. End of chapter 3